You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the House of Literature and to this lecture by Alan Hollinghurst. My name is Madeleine Edemetz. I work with the literary program here. In writing his recent book, Change Method, Louis was deeply inspired by Alan Hollinghurst's novel, The Line of Beauty. Both books follow a gay male protagonist trying to fit in with a different class than they were born into and explore a common theme of sexual identity and politics. Alan Hollinghurst is an English novelist, poet, short story writer and translator. Throughout his writing, he has themed the gay male experience in different historical contexts and issues that can be created by difference in class, wealth, age and sexual experience. He's the author of novels such as The Stranger's Child and The Sparsehold Affair, and of course The Line of Beauty, which won the 2004 Booker Prize. In this personal lecture, he will share his thoughts on change method and reflections on shared themes such as class, culture and sexual identity. Please welcome Alan Hollinghurst. Thank you, Madeleine. I'm not actually going to say exactly what you said I was going to say. Uh, uh, I came up with the title before I'd written the lecture, which is always a mistake. We heard yesterday in compelling detail from Ed Edouard Louis himself about some of the personal and socio-political imperatives that dictate and shape his work. I wanted this evening, whilst honouring those passionate compulsions, to take a short look at what is much his longest book, Changer Méthode, but in a rather more formal light, from, from the point of view, if you like, of the novelist. Since Edouard is a writer of great technical skill, and to me, a galvanising figure who, though nearly 40 years younger than me, has things to teach me both about my own craft and about the assumptions, some conscious, some less so, that underpin it. In all Edouard's earlier books about his family, there was a latent irony and an implicit narrative that they were written by someone who had escaped from the world he was describing. Each book made him more famous and his story better known, and the reader was able to explore it in new perspectives, both perspectives unexplored in the earlier work and perspectives which must have opened up to Edouard himself in the eight years of his enormous literary success but which were much more to do with his growing older and wiser than they were with that success itself. The writer, analysing his past, writes in a presence that is continually advancing, where nothing sits still for long, and high achievement may be matched by unanticipated crises. His second book, History of Violence, dilated on a terrifying incident from the years immediately preceding his emergence as an internationally known writer. Here, the family dynamics of the first book were amplified and modified by the curious but memorable device of Edouard giving his sister a significant part of the narrative, overhearing her repeating the story he has told her to her silent husband, a device that dramatises the occlusion and subjectivity of all narratives of experience, 
the way all our understanding is filtered by the terms, the limits and conditions of our own circumstances, our prejudices and our access to information. The book is in part a study in memory, understanding and the possession or not of one's own narrative, one of the driving concerns of Edouard's work. It is also the story of a crime or sequence of crimes and it plays in a thriller-like way on the reader's desire to know what happened, at the same time as filling the reader with an absolute dread of its happening. I would say that it has a very similitude in its minute details of feeling, reaction, the sheer unexpectedness of human behaviour under duress that no mere desk-bound thriller writer could ever have imagined. And something larger was at stake for us too. It is an aspect of the privilege which an obsessively autobiographical writer gives us, that we knew Edouard already, having followed him from his childhood up to this point, admired him and invested our own hopes in him, so that we shrank from the prospect of ill befalling him, even as he drew us irresistibly through the details of its approach. Then came the two very short books devoted to the lives of his father and of his mother, books that revisit certain episodes, certain motifs, with an obsessive desire to confront them, understand them, and to see them in their largest political context. To me, these are both extremely moving books. There is nothing more liberating for the memoirist, whatever inhibitions have to be overcome and fears confronted, than to write of his or her own life, loves, fears and hatreds. It is hugely more complex and demanding to enter with understanding and compassion into the lives of those he or she has feared or hated. Um, sorry, uh, hated, who have threatened and traumatised them. Plain humanity demands it of the writer, as do the imperatives of the deeper sociological understanding in which Edouard's ongoing narrative is couched. As Who Killed My Father shows, in its fierce and accusatory way. This particular father is like this and did this for reasons beyond his effective control and beyond his power to change. Seeing Hans Kesting's 90-minute solo performance in Ivo van Hove's dramatisation of the book was to have this sense of entrapment powerfully reinforced, not least in those brief sequences of abandon in music and dancing, so intense and yet so brief, and in the long view, changing nothing. It is this terrifying and powerless inertia that Edouard has unforgettably analysed and in his own work magnificently challenged. Inertia has two meanings, both the inability to move and the inability, once movement has started, of stopping again. The escape from one entails the other, in this case, the extraordinary velocity and intensity of change once embarked on. What he calls at various points in Changer Méthode, l'urgence, l'obsession and l'ivresse de la métamorphose, the urgency, obsession and intoxication of change. And part of the intense interest of this book lies in his bringing his personal narrative of escape full circle and tackling some at least of the events of the years between leaving his village and the publication of The End of Eddie. I imagine it required a further passage of time before these years were, as it were, processable into literary form. And I found myself responding in a very personal way to this 
having myself published the first book set in 1983, just before a huge socio-political upheaval in Britain, the years of Thatcher and of AIDS, then written two other novels dealing with different matters, before in my fourth, The Line of Beauty, returning after 16 years to the exact moment in history where I'd left things at the end of the first book and picking up the story with a sense of at last knowing how to address that large narrative hiatus. When an author, author writes as grippingly as Edouard does about his own life, he creates a quite primitive narrative hunger for more information. The end of The End of Eddie delivered our hero to his lycée in Amiens. Changer Méthode describes in memorable, though not exhaustive detail, what Eddie did next. I'm not being facetious in calling him our hero, because we follow him, he compels us to follow him, with all the invested feelings and longings for his success that we bring to the protagonist of any great 19th century Bildungsroman. And perhaps what intrigued me most about Changer Méthode was the way in which, while enthralling us with his narrative, Edouard challenges the very terms in which such a narrative is conventionally conceived. All really original writers educate their readers in how to read them. It is part of the enlargement of understanding that they bring about. Often that enlargement brings us to the edge of our prior understanding of what subjects literature could encompass and what means it could take to do so generally with the intention of making writing more like life, of bringing more of the sensation of real life into it. There is a telling passage in Who Killed My Father where Edouard confronts an imagined accusation that he is repeating himself and retorts that things must be said over and over until they are listened to. I'm not afraid of repeating myself, he writes, because what I write, what I say, does not answer to the exigencies of literature, but to those of necessity and urgency, to that of fire. There is a devastating moment in the new book where, the night after drinking wine with the director of a bank on a polar bearskin sofa, he goes to visit his father in the rent-controlled habitation where he now lives and experiences the vertiginous and inexpressible gulf between two worlds wholly ignorant of each other. I could never have explained it, he writes, because it is beyond language. He offers, as a token of what cannot be said, a small black-and-white photograph of his father standing some way off and seen only from the neck down. It's obvious, of course, that no romantic novel would be called Changer Méthode, as abstract and austere a title as you could imagine, <laughs> and of a piece with Combat et Métamorphose d'une femme, or indeed the Foucauldian Histoire de la Violence, in all of which the language of sociology suggests a scientific detachment that will be greatly complicated by the passion of the texts themselves. I'm not much concerned with definitions of genre, whether any of these three longer books are or are not novels, as they have been described by their English publishers, at least. To me, they are manifestly works of art, and also dependent on their being true, however the artist may have selected and arranged his material. I read them as autobiography, and I note those moments in the new book where Edouard alters or amplifies the narrative of the first, and where he admits to changing or fusing characters for narrative effect. <coughs> An autobiographer has many, if not all, of the freedoms of a novelist. Edouard keeps alive in the reader, nonetheless, an awareness of form, 
the short intervening books being more like essays, and in Changer Méthode, combining novelistic momentum with enduring habits of essayistic analysis and self-examination, set out sometimes as question and answer. In Changer Méthode, the narrative of self-transformation is marked by the broken structure, which makes two major sections of the book extended addresses to real people. So, the section called Elena, about the young school friend who takes him into her and her family's life, a friend who is also a magician of change, is addressed to Edouard's father. And the third section, short letters for a long farewell, is written to Eleanor herself. We are made privy, in both cases, to addresses charged with complex emotion to two persons the narrator has effectively broken away from and left behind. They are explanations, shot through with guilt, anxiety, regret, even as they advance the narrative for the reader. They add a further sense of vulnerability to that narrative as we effectively eavesdrop on intensely private matters. I think here again of the unusual device in History of Violence of Edouard eavesdropping on his sister explaining to her husband what has happened to her brother. It's not quite the same, but it points to a preoccupation in Edouard's work with the fragility of personal knowledge and the ease, the near inevitability with which it may be misunderstood. Just as he silently corrects his sister's overheard narrative, so he struggles to make good to Eleanor the painful history of his leaving her behind, to make her see its necessity and, in re retrospect, its inevitability. His is a form which examines itself even as it unfolds. Traditionally, a story of gay emergence will turn on particular yearnings, unexpressible desires felt by the protagonist for a certain boy or man, depending on the yearner's age and his tastes. Physical desire, however mixed or sublimated in higher feelings, will drive him forward, and the reality of sexual contact, when it happens, will be conjured up with more or less explicit detail, according again to the taste of the writer. Such things are treated very glancingly in Changer Méthode, and one might wonder why the drama of sexual initiation itself is so ignored. One reason might be that the writer considers it none of our business, what actually happened between him and Pierre, the man he first meets online and then travels repeatedly to an outer banlieue of Paris to stay with. This explanation does not fit at all with the habit, the absolute precondition of ruthless honesty about himself that prevails throughout his work. Then, in a different writer, or one of an earlier period, one might have spoken of drawing a veil over what happened in the bedroom, or more cinematically, of closing the bedroom door. But again, these suggest a certain prudishness, a bourgeois tastefulness alien to our writer. <laughs> then one reflects that where he has written most openly about sex is in History of Violence, where cock, the thing and almost as excitingly, the word, lurking and longed for on the page as in life, is repeatedly revealed and spoken of. But there the anticipation of traumatic violence has already created a context of intense apprehension, so that the reader wants to say, no, don't do that, put it away. <laughs> it may also be simply that Edouard considers this narrative of sexual self-discovery to be too well-established a, a literary type to need to be further added to. But the sense I get most strongly from the picture of his development in Changer Méthode is of sexual need being secondary to the larger imperatives of change and escape. 
In his first lovemaking with Pierre, he is conscious in the act of all its symbolic power of rejection of his past, which is thus ineradicably present even in the moment of liberation from it. To sleep with a man is both to be himself and to change himself. In making love with a man, he writes, I was rejecting all the values of my background. I was becoming a bourgeois. It's not, of course, quite so simple, because it is a simultaneous experience of freedom and of dependency and of the need for shelter. And shelter will form an important part of it. On his early weekend visits to Paris, success in picking up a man at the duplex will mean he has somewhere to spend the night. It's touching and romantic that he counts even those nights spent wandering the streets as in their way successes as evidence he is at least in Paris and living a life driven by his own desires. But the drama of that metamorphosis, sex itself, is often transactional. There's an element of surprise for a reader who is nearly 70 that all these things looked back on by Edouard Louis as, in a Wordsworthian or Proustian summoning of times past, turn out to have happened just the other day. <laughs> that first search for sex online is happening, I think, in 2009 or 10, in a world I think of as extremely different from that in which I made my own first tentative explorations. This prompts two separate reflections. First, that the fear of acting on a forbidden desire is a universal and unchanging thing. And second, that when things have in fact changed as much as they have between my adolescence and Edouard's, his story illustrates all the more powerfully the particular social and educational restraints and deformations of his upbringing and the protracted and complex nature of the escape from such deeply internalised fears and shame. When he describes the effect on him at the lycée of hearing someone say the word homosexuality, I'm taken back 50 years to when it had the same effect on me and at a similar age, circa 1970. One learned the art of heading off the subject if it was seen approaching or countering it swiftly with another subject if it had been brought up unexpectedly. It was always the same sensation, he writes. Every time the word homosexuality was spoken, my pulse accelerated because I was sure it had only to be uttered for everyone to understand that it was associated with me. I had learned to divert conversations with great skill. When someone spoke of homosexuality, I always found an urgent subject to redirect their attention. By the way, did you see about the assassination in America? You saw who died. What are we all doing this evening? And the heat in my cheeks, in my whole face. The thing that those of us dismayed by the potential for exposure in this word had to do, then as now, was to seize it and claim it and the existence it denoted. I suppose any gay reader in particular will be comparing notes with Edouard. The literature of homosexuality is still exceptional enough for that. And even in an age where in Western cultures the acceptance and exploration of sexuality are so advanced, the testifying force of a gay memoir is still felt and responded to. It's a striking moment when at the age of, I think, 17, he comes out to his adored friend Eleanor, whose reaction is to give him a copy of Thomas Mann's Death in Venice. <laughs> not, not the most affirmative text to choose, perhaps. The, the, the most reassuring message to convey about gay desire and its possible outcomes, but a revelation in itself. It sent me back to my own final year at school in 1971, 
when a group of us were taken to the cinema in the nearby town to see Visconti's film of Death in Venice, a book I had bought on holiday in Paris and had therefore read, pretentiously enough, in French. <laughs> it was telling, of course, that Elena, whose education is steeped in literature, should have chosen that text. But then I thought, were there not 40 years on from the time when Visconti's film and then Benjamin Britten's opera were giving Mann's novella new prominence, were there not more suitable and encouraging books he might have read? A person in his position nowadays, of course, could be given Changer Méthode. Changer Méthode itself, though it contains a gay coming-out story, places sexual emergence in a nexus of other emergings, social, political and intellectual. Interestingly, as I have suggested, it is hardly at all a book about sexual love, indeed hardly a book about sex. There is only one anonymous encounter that is evoked with any great warmth, and there are others, perhaps more memorable, which are failures, whether brutal or pathetic. Almost at the opening of the book, in a formal prologue, there is an account of a first humiliating experience of prostituting himself, intended, I think, to prepare us at once for the bleaker side of a story in which happiness will be very hard won, and in which sex itself will often have a transactional nature, if not always so unpleasantly as this. A later episode, which sticks in my mind with the clarity and complex sadness of a perfect short story, is that of Edouard's brief relationship with a much older man met online, whom he travels to Barcelona to be with and commit himself to, and on arrival finds that lovemaking is again impossible, though here it is delicacy rather than brutality of feeling that is so effective. Changer Méthode is at its heart a book about friendship, as a good in itself and as an agent of change. The treatment of the theme is made the more touching by Edouard's own unawareness of whatever it is in him that, after a childhood of being despised, makes him so lovable to others, to Eleanor and Nadia and Didier and Geoffroy, to the various women who help him and give him work, and no doubt to the succession of wealthy men who take him under their wing, in much more transient relationships, which he nonetheless sees as non-exploitative. I liked his subtle insistence that the giving and receiving of protection is an inherent part of a million relationships, and that the idea of one member of a couple using the other is often crudely inadequate to the complex satisfactions of relations between, say, an older and a younger man, or a richer and a poorer one. Some of these friendships with rich men take him into milieu utterly unimaginable from where he started out, the Picassos, the fine wines, the polar bearskin sofas. The friends are mentioned unjudgmentally and often gratefully, even if the people whom they move among and introduce him to give rise to brief moments of savage indignation on his part. But it is all very summarily described, with no elaboration of scene and mood, none of the telling detail he brought out his evocation of life in Eleanor's family, the multiple changes in behaviour and attitude which mark, as Eleanor's mother says, the start of his embourgeoisement. Again, this is a book which defines itself by what it doesn't do as much as by what it does, and the omissions illustrate its larger theme. There are, clearly, authorial habits and choices which spring from a bourgeois entitlement to culture, a certain confidence of reference, a luxuriance in detail and mood, and equally, as Edouard discussed so interestingly yesterday, a tacit reliance on things that don't need to be explained. That these 
are not in General Edouard's habits is no kind of deficiency. Indeed, it is another of those things that throw the nature of conventional literary narrative into relief. And I don't mean to say by this that he doesn't powerfully evoke scenes and places. The spareness of the treatment sometimes stimulates the reader's imagination in the way that a high-calorie description wouldn't. To have evoked in more detail his period of being snatched up like Ganymede into the highest Parisian society would have required engagement with a traditional genre of social comedy, one that I see myself as having worked in from the start, and which I imagine him rejecting for two principal reasons. That engagement with, and therefore to some extent playing by the rules of any such genre, is not his aim, indeed rather the reverse. He could subvert the genre with its rival claims of snobbery and satire, but really why bother? when he is focused on a form and a manner apt and particular for his own experience, unfiltered through literary convention. And secondly, because of the very element of comedy, which may, of course, be transgressive, but thrives on a thousand unstated assumptions. Edouard can be a witty and increasingly an aphoristic writer when he sees that if the mayor of Geneva, who has befriended him, were also to adopt him, he would have achieved the ultimate rewriting of his life and chosen his own father, I laughed out loud. But he is not in general, for all his bitter and furious sense of irony, a humorous writer. Impelled by his own urgency, as I was from beginning to end of Changer Méthode, I was struck at times by a fascinated feeling that Edouard was omitting from his narrative many of the things I would have put in, and indeed made quite a fuss about. Not only the social comedy, but the more intimate aspects of his sexual history. It was as if his treatment of his, of his world was the negative of my own, despite the great proximity, at times, of subjects that we've both written about. I would like to say a word about Edouard's style, having read three of his books in English, and two, including Changer Méthode, in French. Whatever he may do to enlarge and unsettle our understanding, he is not linguistically a disruptor. His originality, in terms of his subject and the urgency of his message, is not matched by any programmatic violence to the prose medium itself. Indeed, he is a writer of extraordinary clarity and lucidity, whose aim is always maximum impact. The most difficult passage in Changer Méthode is a paragraph by Didier Eribon, an admirable, elegant and meaning-packed paragraph, but of a syntactical density that sets it apart from the 300 pages that surround it. Edouard's clarity is admirable too, and not to be equated with mere simplicity. Indeed, the sensation of ease with which this English reader devours his French prose is pleasingly complicated. The effect of transparency is inextricably mixed with a sense of necessity, his overwhelming need to be as clear about his subject as language can allow. There is to be no obstacle. The self-exposure of the text is not to be matched by stylistic exhibitionism. His aesthetic is clear and individual, in part because it distinguishes itself from conventional preoccupations with the aesthetic, with what we call in English fine writing, which is not, of course, to say that his writing is not as fine as could be. And also strongly personal. I think you would know within the space of a paragraph that it was him you were reading. I note, too, a sometimes wildly expressive use of long sentences, not Proustian sentences, where one hangs on grimly to the subject as one travels through half a dozen subordinate clauses <laughs> in search of the main verb, 
but cumulative sentences which pour out with unstoppable energy in phrase after phrase. He records his own manic talking after the assault by Reda in History of Violence, and at times his prose has that effect. It has the force of a tirade, a kind of lucid ecstasy of protest or excitement or self-accusation, any number of powerful emotions. I don't know who his stylistic models may have been, partly through my own narrow experience of French prose, partly because his literary education is not something he has touched on very much in his own books. Reading comes to play a very important part in Edouard's metamorphosis, but is, it is apprehended here more in quantitative than in appreciative terms. A small photograph of his room with every surface stacked high with books confirms the story, but almost nothing is said about the effect on him of any particular book that he reads. It's a delirium of reading to catch up on a drastic shortfall and to advance himself to the next stage, getting into the École Normale Supérieure. Later, struggling to write his own book, repeatedly starting and abandoning it, he describes himself reading so as to learn how to remember, to see, perhaps, how Nabokov has treated memory, though he mentions no more than Nabokov's name. We know from history of violence about the revelatory effect William Faulkner had on him, and we long to know more. Perhaps another book is latent here, a further implicit narrative, in which he describes his relationships with books in a more intimate way. All those books consumed early on and not always understood, a chain of books, as he evokes it, of one book leading to another, or a Sartrean discipline of reading a book a day. That writing a book will be a redemptive achievement is powerfully clear. But one notes, too, his marked mistrust of the idea that reading books could be redemptive. I detest, he writes, those accounts of childhood saved by books and libraries. I find them naive. Yet he recognises that the book, in one way or another, has been at the heart of the new life he has made. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.